Welcome to Hallowed Ground Storycast. I'm Anya. And I'm Alan. And this episode is about one of my favorite movies that has a terrible reputation, Kingdom of Heaven Director's Cut. It's okay, Alan. God will understand. And if he does not, then he is not God, and we need not worry. So I guess we should probably give a plot summary for all the people who didn't watch the movie, which is probably most of the people. (laughs) Right. All right. So this will be a little bit easier to summarize than our last movie. Uh, The plot's pretty (laughs) straightforward, luckily. Balian is a medieval blacksmith living in France. After his child dies, his wife commits suicide. The local priest spitefully mutilates her body to ensure she is punished in hell for eternity and Balian murders him in retribution. He escapes the local authorities by traveling to Jerusalem with his long-lost father, and after his father's death, inherits a title in the royal court of the Crusader Kingdom. The king's sister, Sibylla, befriends him and the two fall in love. The king is dying of leprosy and gives Balian a choice from his deathbed. He can marry Sibylla, and help her raise her young son, who will inherit the throne, if he agrees to the arrest and execution of her husband. He refuses, and Sibylla's husband, Guy, leads the kingdom into a hopeless war with the Muslims. Sibylla realizes that her son is also afflicted with leprosy, and decides to spare him the painful life her brother, the previous king, suffered. She poisons him. With Guy and his allies left unchecked, their immoral and ill-advised military decisions lead to a siege by the Sultan Saladin that costs the Europeans their control of Jerusalem. Balian is exiled back to France. So, it's kind of a circle. It's a there and back again. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, a little bit about the production history of this movie This is the director's cut, but the theatrical cut of the movie is 45 minutes shorter. And the movie cost $130 million, but it only brought in $47 million domestically. Um, And even though it made its money back worldwide with $200 million, that's considered pretty much a huge failure when you've got people like Orlando Bloom in it, Liam Neeson, Edward Norton, Um, You know, a lot of big names, Ridley Scott producing a huge movie that is like a terrible legacy for this movie. It debuted in 2005 and Ridley Scott released this director's cut in 2006. There was a lot of critical praise for it when the DVD came out. So did you go see it in theaters? I did not. I do remember seeing like a couple of commercials for it. But when I was checking reviews, everybody said it was really disappointing. A year later, when the director's cut came out, I read a review of the director's cut on IGN.com by Todd Gilchrist. And he really talked up the whole thing and said how disappointed he was in the original theatrical release and how much he really loved the director's cut and how it fixed so many things. So that got me pretty excited and I ran out and got the director's cut right away. I always think when I'm watching this movie because of the director's cut is this idea that exists in writing culture that when you go to edit your manuscript or whatever you're working on, whether it's a screenplay or a short story, whatever it may be, 
there's a lot of virtue laid at this idea of killing your babies or killing your darlings. Um, this idea of subtracting from your story to make it better. And there's definitely truth to that, I think. You probably do have a lot of things after your first draft that need to be removed from the story to make it better. But I do think that you can cut too deep and fundamentally change the meaning of your story if you subtract too many things. This movie's really long and it's pretty slow and confusing, especially right up front, which is not good. Like you wanna hook people right away. And it's hard to get into this movie. And I think it spooked the studio people pretty badly. And they went and took a hatchet to this story in a way that fundamentally changes it. When you subtract the Sibylla plot with her son. And in the beginning, they also subtracted all the information about Balian that said that he had ever been in a war before. Because he's, you know, when they're talking to him, he says, oh yeah, I was a soldier. I fought for one lord against another and I don't know why they were fighting, Mm -hmm. you know, but I was there. I was an engineer. So he like worked on the siege engines and stuff like that. That tells you right up front that Balian's smart. And also he's a smith. He's somebody who makes something. So later in the movie, when you see him marking out the stones for the trebuchets, when he's doing the defense of Jerusalem, you know that he has already done work like that. Like that is a payoff to the information that you get at the beginning. That was cut from the theatrical uh, release. And so what it seems like is that Balian is just a blacksmith in a town who kills a priest. He doesn't know how to fight. Liam Neeson gives him one sword lesson and then dies. <laughs> and then now he suddenly knows how to sword fight. So all of this like becomes much more unlikely. It becomes harder to swallow when you subtract all that stuff out. Uh, And this story is a good example, a good reminder, I think, that even though it's very long, even though it's confusing, the things that they tried to do to fix the problems in this story made it a different story and it made it a worse story. Uh, And that's something that that storytellers should keep in mind when they edit. Yeah. So you said the director's cut first. Yes. Yeah. I've actually... um, never seen the theatrical cut. I've just read about all the differences because the DVD doesn't include the theatrical cut at all. <laughs> they like really don't want you to see how bad Yeah, it Ridley Scott's not very happy about like what happened between him and the studio and the way that they cut his movie up. And I think that has something to do with the speed with which the director's cut was released. I think he really pushed for it. This is reminding me a lot of the most recent episode of Pop Culturally Deprived, where they talked about Blade Runner, and it sounds like Ridley Scott also had a lot of issues with the studio, and, you know, there's like eight different cuts of that movie. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's kind of the same issue, because this movie is so meditative and lacks dialogue for long portions and stuff like that that he's asking a lot of the audience. And I think that makes studios really nervous once they've invested a lot of money in simply hiring a big name, you know, like Orlando Bloom or like Harrison Ford at that time. And they're like, man, we need our money back. And he's like, man, I need my artist's vision to be, you know, have integrity. And they're like, screw your integrity. We need to be safe. So I think in both of those cases, you could see that the choices made 
by the studios harmed the story overall. The voiceover at the end of Blade Runner is famously terrible and cutting out in this movie the entire plot of Sibylla's son and him, you know, becoming the king and all the choices that she has to make related to that gut that character and really changed the entire context, in my opinion, of the entire story. I don't know. There's a lot of fear-based decisions around money, and Ridley Scott, I think, has better storytelling instincts than the people who pay him. It makes you wonder if the studio executives even realize what they're signing up for, right? Because I haven't seen a lot of Ridley Scott movies. I've seen this one. I just rewatched Blade Runner um, for Pop Culturally Deprived, and I saw Alien somewhat recently. Mm-hmm. And they are all like much slower-paced, more meditative movies than you would expect for kind of like a big action-y blockbuster. And it seems like over and over again, the studios are basically like signing up Ridley Scott to do his thing without actually realizing what his (laughs) thing is. Like they have this idea of what he is. And then when he actually does his thing, they're like, wait, I thought it would be different. You're the same guy who made Gladiator, right? Just do that again. Oh, he did Gladiator? See, I'm I'm like so unschooled. Yeah. Which okay. is more blockbustery, <laughs> but it does have these long, like meditative moments about like death and, you know, and like the whole thing where he's in this grief over his wife, which is I think far longer than any other director of a historical kind of action movie would have done. He's much more like into theme and idea than a lot of directors are. There's another movie of his that I really like called Legend. And you talk about like people not knowing what they're signing up for. Legend was like a fantasy movie, kind of like Lord of the Rings, but way before any of that stuff was able to be made with Tom Cruise in it. And if you've never heard of this movie, it's because once again, it didn't make any money. And the studio like made a lot of bad choices. They put in like a terrible soundtrack to it instead of like an orchestral soundtrack. It's like this eighties synth kind of stuff. It's really weird. And then they chopped up the movie. They like made it a lot shorter. It doesn't really make any sense. And so, you know, there's a director's cut of that movie too. But the funny thing about that movie is there's a famous location where they make movies. They make the star Wars movies there and James Bond, it's called Pinewood studios in England. He had like this fairy tale forest where most of it was set And this entire forest is like made of styrofoam trees and like everything is carved and painted. It's, it's gorgeous. It looks very real, but I mean, the whole thing was fake, but the thing was that it was summertime and it was so hot there that this styrofoam was kind of like exhalating, you know, all kinds of hydrocarbons and stuff. And they were collecting inside of this big studio it wasn't properly ventilated and then the oh, ent- no. yes the entire thing exploded one day um oh, shit. and burned down to the ground so and he you know nobody was there luckily like nobody got hurt but um he heard about it and then he just went and played tennis that day and he was like, well, I don't know what else I can do. I can't shoot my movie because the entire thing burned down. So that's kind of if you're going if you're a studio and you're going to hire Ridley Scott, this is what you're signing up for is what I'm saying. Wait, so did they have to rebuild the whole set to finish the movie? Luckily, they were done with I mean, they were totally done with the forest scenes after that if they wanted to do any reshoots or anything. 
but they had the movie kind of begins and ends there and they had already shot the beginning and the ending so um, okay so then they just had to do the middle bits yeah but it was it was crazy on this movie too there was a fire disaster so i don't know if that's just a thing with ridley scott like one of the siege towers at the end of the movie caught fire when it wasn't supposed to and they woke up ridley scott in the middle of the night they're like the siege tower is on fire and like the first thing he says is well is anybody filming it (laughs) so (laughs) he made them go out and and film it so they could be in the movie and it is in the movie for about six or seven seconds you get to watch it. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it's pretty cool. (laughs) And I will say that like for a Hollywood movie, you know, we're talking about how Ridley Scott is kind of different than most directors. I think that overall, this is a really authentic expression of the period of the Crusades. He's very balanced in his approach to um, Saladin and the Islamic side of the conflict and to King Baldwin, the king of the Christians and the Jerusalem side. I think it's very balanced it hues pretty close to history. I mean, for a Hollywood movie, I never sense in the movie any strong judgment for the Christians or against the Islamic fighters or the other way around. It doesn't really lionize either side of the conflict, which, you know, given that this movie was probably in pre-production only two years after 9-11 is kind of significant. Yeah, and that's actually one of the interesting things that I read while doing some research um, after I watched the movie was it was called dangerous by some critics at the time because they thought that it would actually further inflame anti-Western sentiment in the Islamic world and sort of like justify Islamic terror against the West because it portrayed Christianity and like you know, Western white people in a kind of negative light. I mean, you say that it doesn't really lionize one side or the other, but like the evil bad guys are clearly some of the Christians, right? Like, oh, the Templars, like not yeah, all for of sure. them, but yeah, mm-hmm. like Guy and Reynolds, you know, are clearly the villains yeah. of the piece. And I don't know, to me, that's just, like, such a bonkers criticism to level against this movie. Like, (laughs) it's a movie about the fucking Crusades. Right. (laughs) How could... Are we, like... Yeah, are we supposed to, like, never have a movie where, like, the white people are ever the bad guys? Like, I don't know. I guess post-9-11 was just a complicated time for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And it would be, like, you know... If they never did watch this movie, then their assumptions about the West would be safe. It's only if they saw this movie (laughs) would they turn against us. Uh, I know. And also it's like the whole like point of the movie is that they sort of figure out how to respect each other on some level and like appreciate each other's experience. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So it's, it's like totally missing the whole fucking point of the movie. Yeah. It's like banning Huck Finn, you know, for the reasons that Huck Finn gets banned. And you're like, no, you're <laughs> missing the whole point. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It it was okay, though, because people just didn't watch this movie anyway. So it it, it was never a problem. Can we talk about the horse wig? <laughs> I never noticed it. <laughs> Oh my god. If you've never looked at the show notes for any of our shows before, you need to go to the show notes and look at this picture. This was like <laughs> so this is a mostly a very serious movie. 
There's this one scene that cracked me up. I, like, could not stop laughing. The camera moves and then stops moving such that there's, like, a perfect eclipse of Reynald's decapitated head on a stake and Orlando Bloom's horse such that it looks like his horse is wearing, like, a ridiculous (laughs) wig and... I took a screenshot of it and immediately sent it to Alan because I was just like, I can't. I didn't know that that was what was happening because I looked at that picture and I was like, well, that is bizarre. Why did they do that? So I didn't even know that it was Reynolds' hair until like right now. So that's pretty funny. I like that. I think that was him. Yeah. I mean, it's like these very luscious red locks. Uh, (laughs) That's why you cast Brendan Gleeson is for the hair. He's great. Yeah. (laughs) I love it. Okay, so you talked a little bit about sort of why you watched the movie for the first time. Did you immediately love it, or did it kind of slowly grow on you the way uh, me and you and everyone we know did with me? I really like Ridley Scott movies um, for the reasons that we talked about. I enjoy kind of doing the extra work, having to puzzle out, you know, what motivates these characters, what are they thinking in this moment where it just shows somebody staring off into the distance or something like that. I do think that this movie is a little bit of a mixed bag. It's very slow in some parts. And then in other parts, you're kind of confused, especially on the first viewing of like, wait, did he just invent irrigation? Uh, What's going on? I don't understand. So I think I've appreciated the movie more over time than I did the first time that I watched it. But I thought it was pretty good. What did you think uh, the first time that you watched Kingdom of Heaven? So I was a little bit confused, especially during the first bit while they're still in France. Mm -hmm. Um, I think like the way that you were texting me during me and you and everyone we know and being like, oh, my God, blah, 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 blah. I was just like, what the hell is going on? (laughs) (laughs) Explain this to me. Why his wife is dead. What is everyone's relationship? Like, I have no idea what's happening. It was very confusing. Wait. But overall, I think, like, once he actually got to the Middle East, I kind of, like, settled into it, and I actually really enjoyed it. Good. I would agree with that. That was pretty much what mine was, too. So, yeah, like, the pacing of this movie is a little bit different than what you're used to. It's, like, a little bit kind of slow and meandering, but I really liked it, and I guess I'll contrast it with uh, Captain America Civil War, which I watched for the first time like a couple days after I watched Kingdom of Heaven. Oh, weird. Which is also a very long movie. Uh-huh. But like, oh my God. I think I might just be done with the MCU. <laughs> like, I was so bored. I was just so bored. It was just like long, pointless fight scenes that like didn't mean anything. And it made me really appreciate Kingdom of Heaven because it was like, okay, at least there's like something there, there. I've never thought of this before to compare uh, Captain America Civil War to Kingdom of Heaven. I'm going to have to meditate on this. I'm not sure what I think. (laughs) I mean, I don't know how meaningful that comparison actually is, except that I like watched them several days apart, but it was just like... Yeah, I couldn't, I I was like, is this, I kept checking my watch. I was just like, is this fight scene really still happening? (laughs) I think it feels longer than it is. And I think Kingdom of Heaven, actually, like once you get into the Middle East, moves a lot faster than the actual amount of time that you're spending watching it. Yeah, I totally agree. 
Yeah, all that stuff in the beginning is pretty confusing. I, I had to watch it many times before I totally understood what was going on. And I don't know that understanding what's happening in France even helps you very much with the story that it's telling. Like, it's a complicated story for no good reason. Yeah, of the things that are not true about it, because I did, I also like went down a Wikipedia black hole after watching the movie to try and figure out what was historical and what was not. Like, Balian never lived in France. Right. <laughs> and and Balian and Sibylla were never romantically involved. But, like, everything else is pretty spot on. And, like, you can't blame Hollywood for throwing in a romance, because they have to. Like, that's... Yeah. I mean, you can blame them, but also, <laughs> like, you shouldn't be surprised, I guess is what I really mean. <laughs> I do appreciate that he makes the, you know, traditional crusade pilgrimage. If you're going to tell a story about the crusades... You should probably have somebody make I that pilgrimage, see. you know? You know, that totally makes sense now for why they did that. Yeah. Right, because even if that character, and for, like, the role he played in the battles, didn't make the pilgrimage, like, the pilgrimage was such an important part of that journey and that story. Yeah, and actually, when I was in England uh, recently this summer, I went on a couple walking tours, and we went to sort of, like, the former... Knights Templar area in the city of London, which is now just like filled with lawyers. (laughs) Um, It's like the lawyer. So still bad guys. Uh, Yeah. Okay. But But it's like the story of the Knights Templar is a really fascinating story where they like they basically like invented modern banking because when you're going on that pilgrimage to the Holy Land, it's really dangerous to have all of your money on you. So they invented a banking system where you could basically like deposit money at the beginning and then take out smaller amounts as you went on your journey. So you never had like all of your money on you at one time. And that was how they became like so powerful and amassed all this wealth was basically by like taking pilgrims and crusaders money and coming up with this banking system. So one of the big themes that I really appreciate about this movie is kind of this idea of a spectrum of belief that the characters demonstrate and how it informs uh, the actions that they take throughout this conflict. And you'll see some of the characters are like extremely religious or they present as extremely religious. They believe that their victory will be assured because of the God that they believe in and because of their own righteousness. And so they believe that like it doesn't matter if the conditions for the war are good or if the ground that they're fighting on is ideal. Since God is on their side, they're going to win. Then there are other characters who are more practical, but whose belief tends to be more sincere and humble. So for example, the main character, Balian, he's really trying to be true to his conscience and be able to look back on his actions and know that he did the very best that he could. And because of that, the choices that he makes are the choices that help the most people and are not necessarily informed by what the church says he should do. And I feel like the same thing can be said of Saladin, um, who is the commander of the Islamic forces, and his advisors are telling him, you know, we should attack. The Christians are here. The time is now. And he he tells his advisors, you know, how many battles did 
Allah win for you before I joined this cause. The practicality of my choices and the sincerity of my belief carry forward my cause better than zealotry would. And in the end, Saladin allows the Christians of Jerusalem to leave without a wholesale slaughter. And so he also makes the choice that benefits everyone and not the extreme choice that maybe some of the zealots in his camp would have made. And so I I really appreciate the way that the story handles that spectrum. You get on both sides of this conflict, you get people who are too invested in their religion and dehumanize the other side. But then you also get leadership that is heavily invested in its belief, but also in the humanity of everyone involved. Yeah, that's a really good point. And that's kind of one of my takeaways from watching the movie, right, is that in this conflict and in all conflicts, right, there's two sides that are opposed against each other for some reason. But then within both sides, you have like people who are more or less strategic and people who are more and less moral. Yeah. In in the ways that they're willing to go after their goal. Although I think, too, if we're talking about sort of Balian trying to be a moral character, we have to talk about the fact that he starts out the movie by murdering a priest. Totally. So to what extent do you think he actually regrets that? Like, do you think he regrets it at all? Like, how much is he trying to make up for that? The decision to kill his half-brother who cut off his dead wife's head so she wouldn't be able to get into heaven... It was like a very hot moment of anger, mm-hmm. right? Like it wasn't pre-planned and it was sort of like in reaction to, I think, some shitty thing that his half-brother said. Yeah. So do you think he he regrets that? Like if Balian at the end of the movie could go back, what do you think he would do? Oh, what a good question. I honestly, like, I'm not sure how much he would regret killing his half-brother for his half-brother's sake versus for like all of the knights in his father's party who end up dying as a result. Right. But yeah, because the local kind of constables come after them and ambush them as a result. Yeah, of that. aka Jamie Lannister comes right. to uh <laughs> to take him back. <laughs> I didn't know that and you texted me it when you were watching that. I was like, what? Are you serious? I've never noticed that before. <laughs> I think that Balian's view of morality kind of evolves. And I think at the beginning of the story, he believes more in eternal damnation, that he's done something so bad that he can never redeem himself. And I think by the end of the story, he's evolved to a different place where he believes that the integrity of your actions count for more than the like kind of sum total of your life's actions. You know, like you said, in that moment, he was very hot and angry. And what happened happened. But all of all of the choices that he makes after he has that conversation about morality with the king are much more considered. And I think that his view of morality comes more in line with the king's view of morality, that you're going to have to give an account one day to God for everything that you did. And I think that he can say, my brother did some really terrible things. I got very angry and I murdered him. And that is an explanation that makes sense, as opposed to an explanation for the situation that he faced in Jerusalem, where he could say, 
oh, well, I really wanted this thing. And so I decided to murder people to get what I wanted. That's not the same thing, morally speaking. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, okay, I'd buy that. I think that speaks to another theme that the writer of the movie talks about in some of the DVD extras that was really on his mind when he was making the movie. His father was actually dying while he was making the script. And he would go to the hospital. Yeah, he would go to the hospital often and speak with his father about, you know, what was important to him looking over the entire course of his life. And he was really meditating on death and thinking about it a lot. And his father would quote to him the scripture from the Gospel of Mark, uh, Mark eight thirty six, And it says, uh, it's Jesus speaking. He says, for what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his soul? And that's really like what this movie is about in that critical choice that he makes in Jerusalem, where he can be with the woman that he loves. He can be the leader of Jerusalem, basically, because once the king is dead, then Sibylla is going to be the regent, and he would be married to the regent. He would be the most powerful knight in Christendom. And um, his enemy, who is the one that is antagonizing the um, Islamic forces would also be dead. And so ostensibly, like if you look at it from a practical point of view, you know, like kind of the trolley problem that's famous, like, would you let, yeah, would you let one person die to save many, many others? That's kind of the situation that he's presented with, like kill this one bad person to save a kingdom. Yeah. It's like the train has stopped and there's a guy on one track who's shooting a gun at a right. bunch of people on the other track. And you can start the train to hit the guy with the gun right? so he doesn't shoot the people standing on the other track. It's a modified trolley problem. Yep. That's a good description because, yeah, it's not like the train hits all the people anyway. He just continues to cause a terrible problem. But he chooses not to do it. You're not diverting a train that's in motion. You're like starting a train that's in motion to kill somebody who's doing something else bad. Yep. And he would get everything that he wants. So this is a really gain the whole world. But he would basically be using the state as a murder weapon, you know, to gain this situation. And he's not comfortable with it morally. When the king talks to him, he says, you know, God's going to ask you, why did you do the things that you did? And you can't tell him, well, it was the most convenient thing at the time. If your heart tells you it's wrong, it's wrong. And he's like, I can't do this. And and the king is like flabbergasted. He can't believe it. He's why not? Are you aware that Guy is a big asshole? And he's like, yes, I know. But he he tells him, he says, I can't uh, live with that choice. And the king understands immediately. And I think part of that, too, is that the king is dying. And so this is also on his mind that he will soon meet God and that he's going to need to account for his own soul. And he's not going to ask any of his subjects to do something that he wouldn't want to do in their place. And, you know, the context of this decision. So I would think that this decision would be really infuriating to people who watched the theatrical release. Because even though you can understand the morality of it and you'd be like, well, great, you made the moral choice. Good for you. It feels like the perfect is the enemy of the good. Like you made the perfect choice and now people are going to die on a massive scale because of it. I think when you contrast this choice with the choice that Sibylla makes. To kill her son that doesn't even exist in the theatrical version. Exactly. Yeah. So you never get that context because she says to him after he makes the choice, she's infuriated with him. And she says, 
you will have wished that you had done a little bit of evil to do much good. And that's kind of what her choice is, that she poisons her son, who is fatally sick with leprosy, to spare him the agony of the illness, um, but also to spare herself the agony of watching him die after she watched her brother die the same way. I think that when you contrast that choice in the way that it unwinds her, after she makes it and the regret and grief that she carries because of that choice compared, you know, with the very light load that Balian's choice is, even though the consequences are terrible, his soul is not as burdened as Sibylla's in the aftermath of those two choices. Do you think she regrets her choice? I think on a certain level, like it's a terrible choice, right? It's the worst choice. But I think Balian's choice is... While, you know, on a practical level, I think a modern audience would be like, you made the wrong choice. This is the wrong choice, Balian. But I think once you add in that contrast, you can understand that the movie is making a more sophisticated point about the spiritual reality of your day-to-day life. Like, can you live with the guilt of having made a practical choice, even if it benefited everybody else? I think she made the practical right choice, but now she has this terrible guilt of knowing that she murdered her son. Yeah, but I mean, and it's not just to save him from suffering. It's like in the scene where she takes away the mask of her brother's face and like sees Mm -hmm. his face for the first time in years and how grotesque and disfigured it is. And she realizes that like, she is disgusted by the physical body of this person who she loved. I mean, it's kind of a selfish choice because she doesn't want to have to feel that towards her son. Yes. And like it kind of, it totally plays into sort of social stigma against people with leprosy and all of that, which is actually like still happening today. Yeah. Kind of a different conversation. Leper colonies are still a thing. Yeah. And I think the choice for him had an element of a selfish benefit as well. You know, he would marry Sibylla, who he loves, and he would become very powerful. And for her, she would not have to go through watching somebody that she loves be ravaged by this disease that she can't control. And she's saving herself from that. I think that the movie's statement on it is that the price is much higher than an audience who is not actually in that situation might assume, like on a personal level. It's real easy to sit back and say like, oh, this is the right thing to do. But then when you're the person who makes that choice, it's much more complicated and personal. If the movie has any other big thematic statement to make, I think it's made in that scene during the final standoff siege of Jerusalem when Balian decides to knight everybody before the battle to sort of like help them rise to the occasion and like you know be better defenders of the city it's so good and it kind of reminded me a little bit of the end of season seven of Buffy oh interesting I get what you mean that's a very cool comparison Yeah, the, like, is it a priest of some kind who sort of is reacting like, like, you can't do this. Like, it's not done. (laughs) Knighthood is supposed to be, like, something sacred for just, like, a few people who have, like, really proven themselves or whatever. And he's like, no, everyone here is prepared to die defending the city. And everyone here deserves to be a knight. And they're going to, you know, do a better job knowing that they are a knight. What makes it real is the oath. Mm-hmm. The the power of those words 
in the agreement that the people make to hew to that oath, like their personal conviction, which plays back into that theme of your personal choice. Is that oath a real knight's oath or did they write that for the movie? I've never heard that oath before, but I'll say that I'm not well-schooled in like knightly orders, you know, from the crusades and stuff like that. I know the Templars and the Hospitalliers and stuff like that, but I don't know their oaths or like anything that they would say. Honestly, I'm like not that religious, not that into like knighthood or oaths or anything, but I was like surprisingly moved when he had everyone recited at the end of the movie. It's like kind of a beautiful thing if you forget about the whole like war death killing thing but like (laughs) right be without fear in the face of your enemies be brave and upright that god may love thee speak the truth always even if it leads to your death safeguard the helpless and do no wrong this is your oath arise a night it's pretty good i thought that was pretty it's pretty good i love the slap every time when they give the oh yeah i like that that's a part of it so good (laughs) and and then yeah slaps him in the face and like and that's so you remember it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. <laughs> That's good. Uh, do you do you see the connection with Buffy season seven? Like in absolutely, is there any, is there any conversation to be had there for like? I mean, I th- I think it's really interesting because the the bishop does ask him. He says, "Does making these men knights make them better fighters?" And he says, "Yes, it does." And objectively, you would say, "Well, why is that true?" Because you know, did they? It's not like a video game, you know, where now they have plus two to sword fighting or something. It's not about their capabilities haven't increased. It's about their belief in themselves. Yeah. In the way that like in Buffy, it is a literal power that is being given. Mm -hmm. But of course, because it's Buffy, like the literal power is the metaphor. And then here it's, I guess, just the metaphor being made literal. (laughs) Yeah, I like that. I'm going to think of that every time now. This is like Buffy. Yeah, Kingdom of Heaven is exactly like Buffy. (laughs) Everything is like Buffy. Like, if you think about it long enough, you could probably do that. (laughs) There was another movie that came out around the same time that was also, like, trying to talk to the conflicts of the Bush administration and also had Orlando Bloom in the main character role, well, one of the main character roles, it was uh, an adaptation of the Iliad called Troy. And I feel like that movie, even though it was more successful than this movie, was like much more clumsy in the way that it, it talked about this sort of thing, where basically that movie was like saying anybody who is religious and runs their government based on religious decisions is a complete moron. And everybody else who makes decisions like based on practical things is always going to win and is really, really smart. And it's like, wait a minute, where this movie is like more nuanced and says, you know, like your moral choices matter. And maybe if you hew very closely to your moral center, it would be the best thing for everybody involved in whatever situation may manifest. And it's more important for people who are in charge of nations and of institutional groups to be moral than it is for anybody else. And also that like, despite our superficial differences and reasons to fight underneath it all, we are all humans facing the same complex moral decisions. And even though we may find ourselves in circumstances where like, 
for whatever reason, we have to fight each other and try and kill each other. Like, that doesn't erase the fact that we are all still humans and we can connect with and respect each other in spite of the external circumstances that set us up to be opposed. Absolutely. I love that. That's great. Yeah, the scene at the end where when Saladin is like walking through the royal palace Mm -hmm. and he picks up the cross that has been knocked over during the battle and then like writes it on the table. I love that. Yeah. It gives me chills. Yeah, I guess I want to talk a little bit more about Saladin. We kind of talked about the role he plays in the narrative and as far as like setting up these themes. Mm -hmm. But I'm curious how you feel about his characterization as the main person on the Islamic side, the main like non-European person in this movie. He's clearly very moral and very tactical, like very smart is he someone who you can empathize with, though? Like, is he is he a complicated, interesting character? Or is he mostly just sort of like a cog in the structure of the movie? Yeah, I think that's a fair question to ask. Because I don't think that we get to see any vulnerability from him. Which, you know, maintains like a certain distance from him that allows him to be noble and regal. But at the same time, we never really invest with him. I think I care more about Guy de Lucien than I do Saladin, even though he's the bad guy. Like, (laughs) I don't like Guy, but I can understand him better than Saladin. Yeah, I think the actor did a really good job with the minimal treatment that the script gives him. Oh, yeah, he's great. And it's definitely to Ridley Scott's and like the movie's credit that they hired a bunch of Arab actors to play the Arab characters. They found like really great people who did a really great job. Absolutely. And he was very careful about choosing the actor. Um, Ghassan Moussad uh, is the name of the actor who played Saladin. He was very careful to pick someone that he knew that you're not going to get up close with him. So he wanted the right look of like, you look at him and you go, oh yeah, that guy's a king. Like I can just tell by looking at him. Yeah. (laughs) I think you do get some vulnerability from one of his lieutenants who he was named Imad. And he's the guy with the horse. And when he first lands, you think that he's the slave of the knight. Oh, yeah. But he's actually the knight, played by Alexander Siddig. I think that guy is probably the character on the Islamic side that you invest in the most. Because you get like kind of a nuanced thing from him where he's kind of a trickster, but he's also has a lot of integrity because he ends up saving Balian from being slaughtered. This movie is also interesting because it's not a time period that gets made into movies a lot, right? Like, there's a lot of movies about sort of, like, super old stuff, the Romans and the Greeks, and mm-hmm. and I think we're sort of comfortable not really projecting our sort of, like, modern understanding of colonialism and power dynamics and stuff onto that, and then there's stuff from the more recent past, 17th, 18th, 19th century, and we sort of, like, have a framework to project our modern understanding of, like, colonialism and morals onto that. 
it was like uncomfortable and I didn't really know what to do with it, right? Because you have these white people from Europe marching into the Middle East to try and take it over. But somehow it does feel like a little bit different than the colonialism that 500, 600, seven years later, because like clearly the, the like power differential as far as like military technology and stuff was much more evenly matched now. Mm-hmm. And I'm obviously not an expert on the history of the Middle East, you know, we don't really judge the Romans for being like an expansive empire that went and took over a bunch of shit. The Islamic empire during this period was basically doing that exact same thing. And so like how much of the Europeans going into the Crusades was just like people being the typical expansive empire assholes that everybody was at that time versus like a very white ethnocentric view of feeling like they deserved everything. Nobody was going there to like spread the culture and kind of like dominate other people and be like, now we're going to teach you science and the truth, you savage. It's like, no. Well, And it also, it, it wasn't really like economically exploitative in the way that like, right. The way that the later waves of European colonialism of, like, Africa and Asia and the Americas was. Like, it wasn't really about that. No, because they kicked all those people out. And they were like, this is ours now. As opposed to colonialism, where they're like, you all work for us. It wasn't like that. Yeah. The view of Europeans as, like, the superior race who deserve to be, like, dominating and exploiting all of the other people. Like, it didn't come out of nowhere, but it, at this point, it wasn't quite fully formed yet. And so mm-hmm. um, it's hard to know, like, how judgmental about that to be because it is in this, like, weird in-between place. I think it is something that Ridley Scott wanted you to think about, though. Like, I think he very deliberately picked this era for that reason. He wanted you to think about white Western European people invading this part of the world And what did that mean then? And what does it mean now? And how did they handle it then? How did they treat each other then? And how are we treating each other now? Like he wanted there to be a contrast, a comparison. Like who are we holding accountable and what standard are we holding them accountable to? But I don't think a lot of people did that, unfortunately. (laughs) They were just like, no, it might give the terrorists like more (laughs) ammunition. Oh my God. I can't even with that. Yeah. But I think that's a a beautiful point. I think that's exactly what he wants you to be thinking about. So that's good. I was excited that there was an infectious disease that was like super plot relevant and a pivotal turning point in the movie. Leprosy, man. Um, (laughs) Leprosy. Leprosy is like, it's such a fascinating disease. Leprosy and syphilis are both super hard to culture in artificial media, which means that it's really hard to study. So we basically like, don't know that much about it. And they both have like weird animal hosts. So like humans and armadillos of all things, which are like super distantly related, are basically the only animals we know that can get leprosy. Oh, really? Um, That's crazy. And syphilis, oddly enough, it's like humans and rabbits. (laughs) Totally weird. It's not as common as it used to be, but it does you know, it still exists. And I think a lot of people think that it like, it makes your body parts fall off. And that's totally not true. true. Um, So when we were talking before we started recording, you were saying that that we don't know that 
much about it. And that's super true. Like, we don't know really how it's transmitted between people because it transmits with such low effectiveness. You definitely can't really get leprosy just from casual contact with someone who has it. You have to be around them for a super extended period of time and probably, like, I don't know, the the high, working hypothesis is that it involves, like, inhaling particles that have been sneezed or coughed hmm. out. It doesn't spread the way that, like, a cold or a flu spreads. You need, like, repeated exposure over time, they think. Oh, well, and then the other thing that's so interesting is that, like, 95% of people are naturally immune to leprosy. or not susceptible to it. Yeah, so most people, like, even if they, like, injected you directly with the bacterium that causes leprosy, like, you wouldn't get it. You know, it's hard to know how much, like, the way leprosy spreads, like, how much of it is just because it's such a, a random like low probability process or how much of it's just because like most people aren't susceptible to it. I don't know if you know the answer to this. I think I read before that like if there are adults with leprosy that that children can be more susceptible to it. And I don't know if that's maybe because they have a weaker immune system or an evolving immune system or something like that. But I don't think it has to do with immunity per se in the way that we think of like the adaptive immune system. If you're not susceptible, it's not that your immune system is blocking it from you. It's that, like, your cells don't have the receptor that the bacteria needs to do its mojo on. Yeah, like, your nervous system cells don't have whatever the bacteria needs to infect them. So it just passes through. Um, And it's not an immune system thing. It's it's like a more fundamental susceptibility. Are you vulnerable or not? No. So, hmm. I liked in the movie, they did a really good job of portraying that the main thing that leprosy does is it basically stops your nerves from working. Right. Yeah, you like can't feel pain and you also have trouble with fine motor movement. Um, And the reason why people do end up having to have like limbs amputated and stuff is not because the leprosy makes your body parts fall off. But because you can't feel pain, you get injured and then you have infections and then you can get gangrene and stuff. And then yep. uh, you have to, to amputate it for that reason. And I remember the first time I watched it, the moment where the hot wax dribbles across his hand and he doesn't do anything. And I like had the exact same reaction as Sibylla. And I was like, oh, no, like he's he has leprosy, too. I knew right yeah. away. Yeah, I know. A little bit about leprosy from my childhood, weirdly, because when I was a kid, I was really into like lots of fantasy and stuff. I I loved Star Wars and like I watched He-Man and the Masters of the Universe and Transformers and like all this fantasy stuff. And after my parents got divorced, my father had custody of me and he became very religious, fundamentalist, um, kind of born again Christian. And so fantasy was like a really bad thing. Um, But when he was younger, he also loved fantasy. And so we got into this complicated kind of situation where I was not allowed to read fantasy or watch anything that had fantasy, like Peter Pan was off limits and stuff like that. But I really liked all that stuff. So I used to like smuggle it into the house and read it. And so he had this notion of kind of like you catch a kid smoking cigarettes and you're like, okay, we're going to sit here and you're going to smoke the whole pack and then you're never going to want to smoke again. And he took Mm -hmm. his favorite fantasy series. And I think this is a little bit bent 
because it, it was like his favorite set of books and he kept them even though this stuff is supposed to be bad. He kind of should have thrown them away. But he had these hardback editions of the Chronicles of Thomas Covenant. And he said, well, if you like fantasy so much, I'm going to read these books to you. And I was like, awesome. I'm very into this. Like all of a sudden now it's okay. <laughs> but So it backfired? Well, the, I was excited to read them and, and for him to give me like positive attention surrounding this thing that I liked. But really his intention was, I think on one level, he wanted to go back to the books and he wanted to share them with someone. But on the other hand, he was trying to like punish me for liking fantasy and trying to turn me off to it because the way that these books are, the main character, Thomas Covenant, has leprosy. And so you learn right away all about leprosy that he, he can't feel his hands and he has to do like these visual inspections of himself constantly, like you said, you know, and he's from like the regular world, whatever. But then it becomes kind of like the Wizard of Oz, like he gets or, you know, like the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, he gets swept up into a fantasy world. And in this world, like one of the first things that happens to him, he meets this young woman on a cliff face and he tumbles down this steep cliff and and hurts himself really badly. He like tears up his arms and his hands and he's very upset because this could mean that he's going to die basically um, because of the disease. Mm -hmm. And she uh, sees that he's wounded and then immediately goes to the river and gathers this mud and starts smearing mud into the cuts and he freaks out and he's like, you killed me. Like I'm dead now. Um, but the mud is magical. It has like these magical powers and it will heal whatever, you know, like a cut or something like that. If you get hurt and she knows this, she knows how to do the magic. Instead, it not only heals the cuts, but it heals his leprosy. And he's like, Oh. completely restored and he's restored to his youthful vigor also. And Thomas Covenant is like a very dark person. He's kind of an anti-hero. It was a response to Lord of the Rings before a game of Thrones or a song of ice and fire, whatever your poison is on that. When he is restored in this way, then the first thing that he does is take this woman who healed him, who's a young woman, like 17 years old, and he rapes her uh, in that, in that moment. Oh. And then there are major repercussions for that throughout the six books that follow. But it's basically the first thing that happens in this fantasy series. And I was in fourth grade when he's reading this to me. Holy shit. So he was like trying to scar yes. you. This was an act of violence against me to like tell me this story. I mean, the story remains dark and gets darker from there. <laughs> like we open with a rape just to let you know what's coming, folks. And it, it gets worse. And he read all six books to me to try and get me off of fantasy. And I, I, it didn't work. Like those books are pretty formative to me. But like every time I watch this movie and the leprosy stuff happens, I always think of Thomas Covenant and of my father, his attempt to try and steer me away from fantasy to save my soul. So you've already touched on this a little bit, um, but is there anything else you want to say about what Kingdom of Heaven means to you? Every time I think about this movie, I think about the fact that I podcasted about this and it was actually the first thing that I podcasted about. 
I think when I went on Pop Culturally Deprived to talk about Dead Poets Society, I told Matthew and Mandy that it was my first time podcasting, but that wasn't totally true. Like I was virgin-ish, not a virgin. The first time that I was ever on a podcast was kind of like just an interstitial guest thing for a guy that I worked with had a podcast where they would go to the movies and watch a new movie and they would then they would watch an old movie and they would talk about both of them but not like in the way that our community does or the way that you and I do where we really like dig deep into the structure and you know talk about all kinds of nerdy story stuff they would just be like you know this movie sucked and it was bullshit and that bitch was hot not the most enlightened kind of conversation anytime that movies come up at my job like people talk to me as if I'm IMDB. They're like, what's the actor in that one role, Alan? Like ask Alan, he'll he'll know. Like who directed this movie? I mean, I do know because like I'm a big nerd and watch all kinds of movies and stuff. So I'm like known for that. And this guy came and started asking me about movies. And I told him like I was um, an English major and I do a lot of writing in my free time and I'm very into storytelling and Storycraft, and they were like, oh, cool. We want to make these movies and we don't have a writer and none of us know anything about storytelling. Would you help us out? And I kind of knew how bro-y these guys are and that they're not really my people. But personally, I'm kind of um, a Taoist and the primary text of Taoism is called the Tao Te Ching. In the 27th part of that book, there's a passage that says, a bad man is nothing but a good man's problem. And a good man is nothing but a bad man's teacher. And that is kind of like a way that you could live your life where you don't go around judging people, you go around helping people. And immediately when they asked me to help them with storytelling, I was like, well, I'm the person most qualified in this facility of delivering boxes to do this job for them. And I feel like these guys have a lot that they could learn from me in terms of the way that they see the world and see the importance of storytelling. And so in a certain way, I'm kind of morally bound by what I believe to try and help them both with the storytelling and to become better people. Uh, So that was my approach in helping these guys. And I wrote a bunch of scripts for them. And I tried to like include parts for women and they resisted that really hard. And I explained to them why it's important. And like we made some stuff and and they would make additions. Like one of the things that they added to one of the first ones was like a whole scene that opened up with a house full of African-American guys who were drug dealers. And I didn't write this scene at all. And then they, the two white protagonist characters come in and kill them all and recover the drugs and money. And I was like, okay, this is a big problem. And here is why it's a big problem. And they were like, no, no, it's cool. It was like a cool action sequence. And it shows like, it's good storytelling. And I'm like, it's not good storytelling. And this is why it's not good storytelling. Um, So that was kind of my relationship with these guys. And they had me on their podcast because one of them really loved kingdom of heaven, uh, or that's what he said. And then they were like, Hey, you talked about kingdom of heaven with me and we're going to talk about it on our show. Do you want to come do that? And I was like, sure. And I would link to the show in the show notes, but it's, it actually doesn't exist anymore. They took it down off of SoundCloud and they don't do it anymore. 
so when I got on the show, the one brother who asked me to be on, basically all that he liked about this movie was the cinematography, which is really beautiful. Uh, I think everything is really well shot and they went on location in Jerusalem and stuff. But he thought that the story was really, really boring. I think he called it a bunch of religious bullshit. And then the other brother stopped watching it after the shipwreck that gets him to the... um, (laughs) So basically before it even really gets Yeah, he got to the good part and he's like, I'm out. (laughs) So he didn't even watch the whole movie. Uh, and he was like, yeah, it's, it's really boring and terrible. And I don't understand why you like this movie. And I was trying to do the same thing that like we do on our show and like talk about the themes. And they were just like kept interrupting and being like, that's stupid. That's not even a real thing. You're just making that up. So it was a pretty bad experience for me, like to be on their show. It was kind of humiliating. And I think I finally just gave up at the end. I was like, yep, it's a really stupid movie. I don't know why anybody would like it. And it <laughs> so... I just kind of stopped talking about it. But I mean, that's why I chose to do this movie on our show was kind of because the experience was bad for me. And every time that I watched this movie that I liked, I kind of replayed that in my head and I would like to have a better experience there to replace that. So I was like, I'll do I'll do it with Anya because she's awesome. That's so cool. Well, I'm glad we can give this movie the treatment that it deserves. Uh, (laughs) Replace that file in your brain with a better one. I don't think that those guys are like terrible people or anything. I think they just had like a lot of unexamined assumptions. And actually, the work that I did with them, I think it did help them because um, after the project that we were doing together was completed, they went and entered a film contest. They had to make an original film like in a month or something. And they made a comedy and they, uh, for the two primary characters, they cast two actresses from the university that they were at. And uh, they ended up winning the comedy prize for the film festival. And the one brother told me, he said, you know, we never would have even tried to have women in the lead role. Cause I mean, it wasn't a love story, but you kept telling us that like, women could be the main characters of like action movies and stuff like that. And we figured they could probably do a comedy too. And it worked out. And I was like, good for you, I guess. You're like, well, you're better than you used to be, but I still kind of want to punch you in the face. (laughs) You've got a tall hill to climb there, soldier, but you keep going. So that reminds me, I feel like we didn't really talk about gender in this movie at all. Mm -hmm. There's like, so there's Sibylla. That's about it. And then the Saladin's sister, mm-hmm. uh, I feel like her role is super small, but like still somewhat powerful and memorable. Oh, yeah. She displays a lot of courage and strength, I think, in just a very short amount of time. And I think, too, it like it really pushes back against a, the stereotype of, you know, Arab women as being completely subjugated and meek and and like not self-assured at all. But yeah, there's not not a lot of ladies in this movie. But I guess, I mean, if we're focusing mostly on European crusaders, I mean, it would probably was a bit of a sausage fest in real life. Oh, for right? sure. Like, yeah. Although, actually, that's a good point, though. You know, that's like one of the conversations that I think people have been having recently is like, the assumptions that we have about like, only white people or like, only men being 
in certain historical situations, like how much of that is real and then how much of that is just because we've been consuming media that portrayed it in a certain way. So like there's that big controversy um, in the movie Dunkirk, right? Mm -hmm. Because um, basically everybody in that movie is European descent white. But like in the real life battle in World War II, there were a ton of soldiers from other places around the world. There were a ton of Indian and African troops who were there fighting the Nazis and they didn't get included in the movie. And so it's like, I think people make assumptions that like only Europeans were there fighting because these popular depictions don't have any diversity. So then when the next movie gets made, there's no diversity and it's sort of like this horrible feedback loop of of whitewashing and so like mm-hmm. i don't know how like how many women went on crusades or if the gender ratio was really that skewed i did like that they included an african guy in <laughs> yeah. the original crusader party yeah. going through europe because that was accurate like there were african crusaders with the Europeans. oh yeah i mean iberia was africans who came up through spain you know and were basically europeans they they could speak all the languages and everything else and yeah totally those guys would have been in the crusades for sure that guy's great too he's really i love his part yeah we'll get like one woman from each side of this culture the depiction of her nobility and strength on the Islamic side is excellent. And the way that she looks at Reynald, he's like, yes, I know. Yeah. I know I'm evil. She just has like a lot of dignity and can't be diminished by his evil. And Sibylla is sufficiently like complicated enough and interesting of a character that she carries a lot of energy in the movie. She pays for a lot of absence. She has a lot of agency and she seems... To really be in control of her own story to a large extent. And she's respected by the members of the court. And even though they understand the situation with her and Balian, nobody is ever judging her or like, oh, this slut or something like that. It's never like that. Everybody likes her and respects her and wants her to be the regent of Jerusalem. They're happy that that will happen. I don't know that I needed the romance. I don't think it really enhanced the story at all. Mm But given that it was there because it's a Hollywood movie, I felt like the way that it was handled was pretty good. The romance is fine. And it didn't happen in real life. And actually, in real life, he was married to Sibylla's mother. So that's weird. (laughs) (laughs) But whatever. It's okay. They're not. I think he's older than her. Yeah, they're not alive to see it and feel squicked out by it. So, nah. So have you recommended this movie to anyone who's not me? And what has your experience (laughs) with that been? I think in the Buffy episode, I talked about um, my roommate at the time, Nick, who had to watch Buffy in order to date his uh, now wife. And I had him watch this movie before. He really liked it. I've had pretty good experience exposing people to this movie. Everybody says the same thing, and it's definitely the weakest part is the beginning. Yeah, I've had a pretty good experience recommending it to people. Now that you've seen the movie, like you've told me your thoughts about it, would you recommend it to anybody? Would you think that you'll ever watch it again? I don't know if I would necessarily recommend it to anyone else. I feel like you have to be in a very specific mood to watch this movie. I mean, obviously, if you're a fan of the show and you listen to this podcast and you're intrigued, like definitely go ahead and watch it. 
I think knowing more about the movie going in will let you have a better experience than maybe just going in blind because it is kind of confusing in the beginning and it takes a while for you to figure out really like what it's trying to do. I would watch it again maybe in a few years. I Yeah, I actually, I really enjoyed the Wikipedia black hole that I got sucked into. And it was really cool to kind of connect the movie with the travel that I had done earlier this year in Europe. So I talked a little bit about this time period being kind of like morally ambiguous, but I think it's also a, a time period that we just like don't learn about a lot in the American education system. Like we sort of learn about mm-hmm. ancient cultures and then fast forward to 1776 or whatever. Right. <laughs> I didn't realize there was like a whole independent like European kingdom of Jerusalem that existed for hundreds of years. The portrayal of Sibylla really reminded me of today's third culture kids, you know, because like she's European in heritage and her ethnicity and like physical appearance, but like she's so blended culturally you know, like, she dresses in a really Arab style, and she, like, she definitely doesn't come across as European as Balian and all of the people who, like, literally just got there from Europe. Like, it's, like, very much a blended third culture. And, you know, she talks about, like, this is my home. Like, I've never known anything else. I've never even been to France. I just heard stories about it. It was kind of interesting. It was, like, a part of history that I really just didn't know about. And you were talking about education. And um, that reminded me that we got some feedback for this episode from one of our listeners named Aaron, uh, that he had to watch the kingdom of heaven when he was in college for one of his history classes. And I just wanted to read a part of his email where he was talking about some of the things that the movie exaggerated and some of the things that it got right. He says, things that we know for certain that are true about the movie, there was a king who was thought to have leprosy named King Baldwin IV, and his sister was Sibylla, and had a husband named Guy, who then was named King after Baldwin's death. Saladin did release all the Christian combatants back to the coast after he retook Jerusalem. Unlike the movie, Guy and Sibylla are recorded to have been allies in all goings-on in Jerusalem, which is much more boring and not as good of a story, so they fixed that. (laughs) Um, It says the great battle that happened before the fall of Jerusalem and the fall of King Guy is overall correct. Uh, Saladin and the Saracens also always ransomed the nobles and killed every member of a monastic order, such as the Knights Templar and the Hospitiers. So pretty much I feel like the movie is accurate in the way that it handled the fall of Jerusalem. It seems like he had good memories of watching the movie in the class. And he remembered the movie pretty well from seeing it, even though it was like for an educational context. And he said he enjoyed the movie and I think they saw the theatrical version. So probably the religious and spiritual themes didn't come across quite as well, but it didn't seem to matter. Like he, he enjoyed it anyway. So before we sign off today, We want to thank Jordan McGill, the co-host of Prophecy Guys, who wrote us a really awesome review on Apple Podcasts. Um, And so we wrote Jordan a haiku. And so we'll do this in the future for anyone else who leaves us a review. So Jordan, this haiku is for you. Kind theologian, fingers tapping on keyboard, we smile back at you. 
Um, so thank you, Jordan, for that. Um, this is really important. This is the main way that we can get new listeners and get our name out there. And if you have any feedback about either Buffy, me and you and everyone we know, or Kingdom of Heaven, definitely shoot us a line. We'll probably have a mailbag episode coming up soon with a special guest. So if you want to be included with that, send us an email or a message on Twitter. I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely Literal. That's Strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. I'm Alan, and you can follow me on Twitter at Chipper Allen. You can follow the show on Twitter at HG Storycast and visit our website at hgstorycast.com. If you'd like to leave us feedback, you can visit hgstorycast.com slash contact or send an email to contact at hallowedgroundmedia.com. And join us next month for our episode on And the Band Played On, which is a movie that literally changed the course of my life. Um, <laughs> it's, it's about the emergence of AIDS in the early 1980s in the U.S., so if you're interested in watching the movie, getting the whole story in two hours, uh, you can watch that on HBO. Or you can read the book, which I think is a, a much longer, more complete uh, and interesting story, but it is quite the investment. It's a work of serious journalism. I haven't watched the movie yet. I know that you just recently rewatched it. I got to... I gotta watch that movie, but I did read the book. Well, I listened to the audiobook, which actually, if you get it on Audible, even has some additional material with it, um, some interviews with the people involved, and it was um, interesting. And the book is like a really impressive piece of journalism. Yeah, impressive is the right word. Impressive work of journalism. Yeah, so definitely join us next month. Hallowed Ground Storycast is a Hallowed Ground Media production and is produced under a Creative Commons non-commercial share-alike license.